You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Monday, February 14, 2022. I'm Ash Bennington, joined today by Real Vision's own Weston Nakamura. Lots happening right now. Uh, let's take a look at U.S. equity markets. Uh, it looks like it looks like S&P 500 pairing uh, some of the losses on the day uh, to close negative 0.39% uh, at 4,401, right at the 44 handle. NASDAQ dead flat on the day, 0.0%. Looks like it's off uh, about uh, about a quarter of a percentage point, closing out the day at 13,790. Uh, Dow Jones Industrial Average also off about half a point. Russell 2000 off a third of a point, settling at 2,222. Dow Jones Industrial Average settling at the day, 34,565 points. Let's talk a little bit about what's happening uh, out in the world today. Uh, the United States has evacuated diplomats and military advisors from Ukraine uh, after a statement from the Biden administration on Friday that a Russian invasion could come, quote, at any time. Word out today that diplomatic efforts are still ongoing. European stocks closed the session down. Stocks Europe 600, that's a broader European index, ending the session down 1.8%. Russia is the world's second largest exporter of natural gas after the United States and a major supplier to European energy markets. Finally, St. Louis Fed President James Bullard, a voting member of the Federal Open Markets Committee, reaffirmed his view today that the Federal Reserve needs to, quote, front load their withdrawal of policy accommodation, adding, quote, our credibility is on the line here. Weston Nakamura, any thoughts? on today's news. Uh, yes. Happy Valentine's Day, Ash, first of all. Thanks. Uh, most importantly, you're welcome. Uh, <laughs> second thought on the news. Uh, yeah, so regarding um, the Russia headlines, Russia-Ukraine headlines, uh, they absolutely do move markets. Um, this is very evident if you actually uh, look at this uh, chart I have. Um, it's basically just two charts. Um, the top one is intraday. I basically have have it set to Central European time, but that's that spike up that you see, that is you know when you got this headline um, shortly before U.S. cash open, and you could see uh, the euro ruble cross, which is inverted on the chart, um, so so as to make it you know uh, easier to visualize. But you can see that that slightly leads you know, E-minis. Um, and then the bottom half of that chart is sort of a longer term, kind of a year to date thing. Um, in the beginning of the year, obviously, the euro ruble cross has really nothing to fundamentally do with E-minis until, um, you know, the this this geopolitical crisis start to really escalate and therefore impact markets. And you can start to see uh, more of a tighter correlation. So um, well, let me just explain what we're looking at here. Uh, so as the euro ruble strengthens, meaning the ruble declines uh, against the euro, you see uh, the S&P 500 E-minis as a proxy begin to sell off. 
Yeah, not really as a proxy. It just means it's so like, you know, Euro, Euro Ruble basically. So if, if the Euro I meant Ruble... I mean, E-minis is a proxy for S&P 500. Oh, right, yeah. So basically, if the if the Ruble is weakening against the Euro, it's generally, you know, investors that are getting bearish Russia because Russia is getting, you know, right. aggressive and uh, heading towards something that might look like a conflict or a potential war or whatever it might be. And then the reversal is, you know, a, a reversal of that kind of sentiment. So, so in the simplest terms, as investors perceive uh, challenges in the Ukrainian region, you see uh, this deterioration in equity market pricing. And that's also reflected uh, in the cross pair between the euro and the ruble. Yeah, more so what I would say is that if you're looking for what, you know, if the, especially if there's an intraday move like you know, like this chart, um, the the top part of this chart. If you're looking for a reason for why a mark the market is moving, you know, it, was it a Fed speaker? There's uh, there's like you know, well, a whole bunch of them this week. Was it something else? Was it a piece of data? Was it a headline from Ukraine? If you look at you know, if you look at this cross rate and then you just throw it on top of a chart of you know, a live chart of uh, emitties or Nasdaq or whatever it might be, um, you can more or less see what's moving markets. Um, and in this case, it is indeed uh, the, these, you know, Russia and Ukraine headlines. Yeah, so not just the correlation, but also the directionality of the correlation. Yeah, and and the the if it's if it's actually the relevant driver or not. Yeah, uh, we should say also in the story about uh, President Bullard, any thoughts on this notion uh, of a sitting FOMC uh, member stating that the credibility of the Federal Reserve is on the line if policy does not, if a policy accommodation does not get withdrawn quickly, meaning rates rise quickly or the Fed begins to lose credibility. That's essentially what Bullard is saying. Yeah, I don't have any um, anything specifically about about that uh, comment, but um, as a concept, absolutely. Um, I yeah. said in my my video on the Bank of Japan, which we'll get into a moment, but yeah. Uh, you know, what central bankers, what, you know, what they, what the most important thing to them is credibility. It's their currency. Without credibility, they have, they have nothing. Look, look at the CBRT of, of, of Turkey, right? Like, if you don't have credibility, you don't have anything. And the, th the, the reason that that's so important is to maintain at all times is that if you do something with monetary policy, such as this, take this negative interest rate in, in Japan that's been there since January of 2016, that has been uh, policy error evident within you know an hour of of the you know of the announcement of it. Yet they've kept it on this entire time. Your date. The reason that they can't pull that out is because the second they do, they lose credibility. And if they lose credibility, whatever is immediately going to replace that failed policy, even if it's you know seen as a failed policy uh, from years ago, that's not going to work because you you don't have any credibility. So you need to maintain cred credibility. So what Bullard's saying is absolutely right in terms of uh, maintaining credibility. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hey, Weston, perfect segue uh, into a point that I wanted to raise, which was your video last week, why global markets are addicted 
to the Bank of Japan. I know we have a lot of U.S. investors who are watching this who are not following the Bank of Japan as closely as you are. So just to tee that up for us, give us the context. Explain the broader significance of the Bank of Japan uh, to global asset markets. Sure. So um, for the full explanation, like I'm not going to regurgitate the whole video right now, um, but please feel free to take a look at it. It's on YouTube. Um, so yeah, uh, and for everyone who who has seen it and who you know commented and all that, thank you very much for all the support. Um, means a lot to me. Basically, what's going on is is the following: Bank of Japan is a major central bank. This is their largest economy in the world. Uh, for whatever reason, at a time when central banks are under like you know the microscope, under like a lot of scrutiny, Bank of Japan is not part of the conversation at all. Um, everyone is looking at you know every central bank as they should be. Um, but the reason that that's, uh, you know, kind of very crazy to me is because Bank of Japan is, in my view, uh, the most significant of all of them. And the reason is because um, at a time when global central banks are removing accommodative policy that's basically been in place for, let's call it a decade, um, and they're basically removing it as if there's no consequences, right? They're just they're just gonna you know they're gonna hike rates, they're going to or are expected to, um, or they're gonna you know uh, stop with their bond buying or whatever their method of accommodative policy is. They're one by one removing them, and that leaves the Bank of Japan as the only central bank that is actively um, still easing, not just not tightening, but they're still easing. And so, what kind of implications does that have on global risk assets? When you have just this one central bank that's that's left doing it, can they do it? Um, will they do it? And what happens if they cannot um, or will not, you know, uh, keep, you know, kind of global asset markets uh, in order as they have been accustomed to for the last uh, 10 years? But either way, if this is the last central bank, major central bank that's still doing this, that's a, a heavy burden to carry. And the fact that nobody is looking at the Bank of Japan is kind of baffling to me. Well, let's talk about that and talk about the policy mechanisms that are in play. Uh, I saw a statistic in your video that was really striking, uh, which is that the BOJ owns approximately 135% of Japanese GDP on their balance sheet. By way of contrast, we've been talking about the nearly $9 trillion, uh, in U.S. dollar-denominated debt that the Federal Reserve owns. Uh, that is only 35% of U.S. GDP on the Fed's balance sheet. You can see this series at WALCL on the St. Louis Fed Fred database. Bottom line, this is like a significant, uh, almost fourfold increase from where the U.S. is. Give us a sense of the context for just how much accommodation the Bank of Japan uh, has unleashed on the Japanese economy. Sure, absolutely. So um, yeah, the reason that that's important to look at is because sometimes people just look at the, the nominal figure of the balance sheet size. And that's meaningless unless you compare it against, you know, relative against the, you know, and, and so by by looking at it as a ratio to GDP, by far, Bank of Japan is the most intensely aggressive um, in terms of their policy easing. So, uh, Brian, right. if you go to um, the the chart, uh, the, the purple charts. Um, so on chart one, this is basically just, um, you know, a, a chart of 10 year JGB yield uh, and yield curve control, which is what I'm focusing on. Um, yield curve control is the most consequential and most radical policy of major central banks in the last half decade. Um, the reason people don't realize that is because it's kind of going on in the background. 
Um, but just because it's going on in the background, it doesn't mean that it's not significant, and it certainly doesn't mean that. Well, let's let's explain what it is because the yield curve control yep. that the Bank of Japan is doing is different from what the Fed is doing here uh, in their policy accommodation by keeping rates low. Give us the context for YCC. Sure. So um, what Bank of Japan has done is leading up to yield curve control, they have amassed something like a little bit under like uh, half of all JGBs outstanding. All right. So they've already kind of cornered the JGB market um, as it is. So that sets it up for um, yield curve control. What yield curve control is, is literally it's, it's self-explanatory. It's controlling the yield curve. There's two components. It's the front end policy rate, which is at minus 0.1. That's the negative interest rate that they did in uh, January of 2016. Uh, and then from September of 2016 onwards, what they started to do was they pin the 10-year JGB yield at around zero. And that around zero is um, it's a very kind of flexible figure um, up for interpretation of both the markets and the JGB. But the way that they control the long end, the tenure, which is not which is something that's unprecedented in modern central banking, um, what they do is they do one of two things. They buy JGBs either by uh, what's called a competitive auction uh, or a uh, fixed rate uh, operation. Competitive auction is basically just their standard, just JGB buying. They it's pre-announced. They say exactly what you know tenor, uh, what the quantity is, what the date is, and they execute those buys at 10:10 10, a.m. on the days that they're buying. The other one, the fixed rate operation, is rarely used. That's when they, the Bank of Japan, announces that they're going to step into the market and they're going to buy an unlimited amount of JGBs at this specific tenor at this specific price, and if you have an unlimited printing press, theoretically, you have a wall of buying that caps yields to the upside. And so that's what um, that's how yield curve control just generally works. Weston, um, I know that there's some news on precisely this front that we're going to get to in a second here. But I want to bring this back uh, for people who are listening to this who are not necessarily uh, following macro policy as closely as you are. I want to give them the context for why this matters. Uh, give us the sense for why yield curve control and, and, and monetary policy in Japan has an impact on global rates, first of all, and then second, to the meat and potatoes, to how this affects, how this affects U.S. equity market investors, what the impact of rates uh, in the U.S. and globally has on U.S. equity markets. Sure. So uh, in chart two, um, the Brian chart two, you'll see that this is the same thing, um, the 10-year JDB with yield curve control. And then I've also thrown on top of it the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield. That's all that is. And what you'll see is that the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield uh, seems to more or less directionally uh, move in line with 10-year JGBs or vice versa. What the significance of this of yield curve control is, is that Japanese households, just take the households, for example. They're sitting on 14 trillion yen or 14 trillion dollars of, of, of cash, essentially. Mo mo the majority of their uh, assets are, are in cash. Uh, hence the deflation, their cash hoarding, um, you know, culture. Uh, same with the corporates, same with, you know, asset managers. They're holding a, a ton of cash, they have a ton of firepower, and they have, they're in need of yield because the Bank of Japan is pinning the 10-year yield, the long end, at zero. So you're literally getting, there's no yield to get in Japan. So what that does is it forces Japanese investors to go overseas, like to the U.S. Treasury market, and buy U.S. Treasuries and you know, and collect yield. Um, and so therefore, when Bank of Japan caps yields in, in on JGBs at, via yield curve control, they're 
essentially what they're doing is they're doing indirect yield curve control on the U.S. Treasury market and even on European um, sovereign rate markets as well, because Japanese investors are buying U.S. Treasuries and all that, and that caps U.S. Treasury yields. And if yeah, you that's look a, at this, by the way, that's a big idea. The idea that one central bank, the Bank of Japan, uh, could be effectively anchoring rates globally uh, because of the cash flow coming out of the country uh, as Japanese investors seek a return on investment, seek yield. Uh, they are pulling down rates elsewhere. This is a big concept. Yeah, it's it's a and it's something that I think is completely you know overlooked by a lot of people. This so this is exactly why you know what what why it's such a big mystery to people um, who look at the ten year U.S. Treasury yield and say like oh how could it be under two percent with the seven handle on CPI or you know because the Fed is doing this because the the reason that th those things don't match up is because the U.S. Treasury market is not just a U.S. based market it's a global right. market. There are global investors, all with their own sort of needs and and whatever it may be, and Japanese investors will unconditionally buy U.S. Treasuries because U.S. Treasuries are, um, first of all, they're always safer than uh, JGBs because Japan has the highest debt in the world, 250% debt GDP. So even with like U.S. Treasury uh, or uh, U.S. like Congress, you know, um, uh, debt ceiling theater, and all, like all of that kind of stuff, even with that. It's still safer than uh, J than JGBs. So, so, so the question uh, you're answering here, Weston, is this idea: Why is it that we see inflation rising uh, in the U.S., but you don't see the massive takeoff in yields, a decline in price in U.S. Treasuries? You're saying it's because uh, of basically uh, central bank policy action coming out of the BOJ, which is causing these hot cash flows here into the United States, creating demand. Uh, and therefore suppressing yield. I believe you pointed out in your video uh, that the largest buyer of foreign buyer of U.S. Treasury debt is Japan, and it is by a wide margin. I think it's 1.3 trillion uh, relative to about a trillion dollars coming from China. These are significant, significant cash flows. Indeed, uh, they they're exporting their monetary policy. They're exporting this, you know, demand for yield. Um, so if you go to um, the uh the the third the third chart the third chart is basically uh this is what how the bank of japan buys um you know controls the yield curve this is the the two ways they do it the left side is the regular buying schedule the right side is this fixed rate operation where they buy unlimited they offer to buy unlimited cap the yield curve and the fourth chart um this is the most sort of kind of recent um like what's going on right now um so Wow. Right now, the Bank of Japan has a uh, yield curve control. They have the upper bound set at 25 basis points. 25 basis points is where the Bank of Japan is going to step in theoretically um, and actually and, and offer to buy an unlimited amount of JGBs. Yeah, this um, is at the 10-year duration. Correct. Uh, and you could see, again, this is this is what the US 10-year US Treasury yield also thrown on top of it. And you can see that um, that 25 basis point level, that was like... Basically, that it was, you know, the 10-year JGB yield was right there. Then last week, um, like literally as I was making the video, this is what happened. Um, but that that level, well, that level wasn't wasn't really breached. But they, uh, the the BOJ came out and made a very sort of unprecedented announcement in which they announced a fixed rate operation in which they're going to buy an unlimited amount of JGBs. But they did that, uh, you, they did that like in advance. So they said that on Monday, so today. We will be conducting a fixed rate operation to buy an unlimited amount of JGBs at 10-year JGBs at 25 basis points. 
what's crazy about that or what's what's you know very unprecedented about that is that first of all when they when the bank of japan conducts these fixed rate operations by an unlimited amount of ggbs ggbs they do so like right on the spot like during the daytime if yields get too high they'll step in like out of nowhere and they'll just offer to buy um unlimited amount of ggbs and then you and that caps yields i've never seen them like do it in advance like especially like days in advance like this um yeah. so that was yeah. a very peculiar thing and the other crazy thing about that too was that they're offering 25 basis points which is below market rate so they're offering to buy below market rate so that to me says that and i don't know for sure but the reason that they're doing that is because i think that what they're doing is kind of a defensive move where they are essentially um sometimes what happens is when they announce a uh a fixed rate operation that announcement in and of itself the threat of the announcement or the the announcement itself will, will kind of threaten the market and the, the market will just back off from it and they won't have to actually con, you know uh conduct an actual fixed rate operation in which they actually get filled um on on you know on these buys and sells yeah i think this that is that's critical because this is the new news here this is the update coming off uh, of your right. last week's piece Correct. Yeah. So, so uh, what they did was like ahead of a three-day weekend, at like 6 p.m., they announced that on the following Monday at 10:10 10, a.m. they're going to they're going to conduct a fixed rate operation, um, at and the rate was set at below that current market level. And so my takeaway from that was that they believe that uh, come Monday today um, that the 10-year JGB yield. Would be yielding far higher than 25 basis points and so 25 basis points would be you know they, they basically saw a bond market crash coming in the, in the near term and this was yeah. ahead of like right before like us cpi was announced and all that too so yeah. uh and so as that's... you pointed out in your video uh, i believe or if you're pointing out uh, on twitter uh, this happened essentially at the moment of the coin toss during the super bowl if you <laughs> wanted to bury something you couldn't have picked a better time to do it something i don't want to bury though weston uh, because it's exactly on point with what we're talking about here uh, is a clip from a show that aired on Real Vision today called How the End of the Asset Bubble Era Will Lead to a New State of Capitalism. This is a conversation between Alfonso Pecatiello uh, and Victor Schwetz. This is a conversation that aired today on the Essential Plus and Pro Tier. Let's take a look at that clip. What I would argue is that in Japan, we have seen the first experiments a while ago where Japan, uh, you know, in the late 80s went created a lot of credit through the government and through the private sector. It, it, it went all through the private sector and then also into asset, into asset prices. And then when the Bank of Japan decided to raise real interest rates, literally above what they thought, well, was neutral, the whole thing immediately collapsed. So we have seen this experiment on and on again, uh, Victor, but are we getting closer to the point where this game is more difficult to play because as our star is getting lower and lower, real interest rates need to be even lower than a very low R star. So it become does it not become more and more difficult to play this game? It is. <clears throat> it is. And that's your marginal utility of money. Uh, you can convert it into velocity of money. You can convert it to marginal utility of money. Uh, your returns are getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And eventually you reach the stage that zero volatility is the only acceptable outcome. And so what we've been trying to argue and what I've been trying to argue and a lot of other people did as well, that we must stop what we're doing and move into a different uh, mode of operation or different economic scheme. Now, the, the problem is that 
most people believe still that the private sector is a primary driver of economic outcomes. And to argue that after three or four decades of what we have done, to argue after decades of technological disintermediation, private sector is no longer the driver and will never again become a major driver. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Alfonso and Victor echoing precisely the points that you made, Weston. Alf saying the BOJ has essentially become a laboratory for global central bank policy. And Victor uh, also following by saying most people don't believe the private sector is the primary driver of outcomes. And quote, the private sector is no longer the driver uh, and will never become the major driver again. Pretty extraordinary statement, Weston. Yeah, um, I mean, it's a pretty extraordinary phenomenon. It's a pretty standard statement, <laughs> but yeah. And so um, congruent with the points that you're making here. Talking of which, tie this together for us, bring it home. We've talked about these uh, historic relationships between global central bank policy, global yield curves. Tell us why this is so significant to U.S. equity investors, the relationship between U.S. Treasury rates and the valuation of U.S. equities particularly growth stocks here in the United States? Yeah. Um, so the reason that this matters is not because of nobody cares about the JGB market. I get that because nobody owns JGBs because the Bank right. of Japan owns all JGBs. The reason this matters to global investors cross asset is because the Bank of Japan has essentially been holding together this house of cards of global markets as we know it um, for the last several years uh, in which low rate environments um, have significant consequences. They have consequences on things like, yeah, the S&P 500, um, which is largely led by the mega cap tech stocks with their insane valuations, or maybe not insane, but they're, you know, very high, high valuations. You know, when you basically have, um, like, growth stocks um, and, and, you know, like tech, like tech sector and, and things like that, when you have, like, low interest rates, um, what happens is like are you are you saying like you want me to explain how that that works right? yeah like, please fine. explain that transit to that that mechanism for uh transmission because i think it's such a critical one for people to understand why this is all so relevant to their essentially u.s equity portfolios particularly people who are invested in large cap tech stocks yeah so um Basically, what happens is the reason that you're seeing like a Nasdaq sell-off in you know year to date from from the beginning of the year is because of this rising rate environment. Um, and what happens like on a fundamental sort of level is that basically, if you have um, you know like like a high growth tech company and you have high valuations, that's based on like these future profits, right? So higher higher interest rates means that you know, earnings that you're pulling forward years from now are are essentially like worth less today, right? And so that's why like valuations get get hit, right? Um, and so when you when you see like you know like the 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 maybe maybe not Facebook because that's kind of idiosyncratic, um, 25% down, you know down a day, but 
Uh, when you see like the the tech sector get you know sold off, that's you know largely a, a function of that you know of of rising rates. So basically, if the bank Japan is capping um, global yields, or or at the very least the the 10-year risk-free um, rate in in the U.S. or long you know long rates in the U.S. Um, via yield curve control, then what they're doing is they're they're artificially capping um, you know interest rates you know in, in the U.S. and therefore they're allowing for tax shares and all that and, and the S&P to unconditionally rise, um, and so that's what we've been been enjoying um, all along. It also what what that does is it allows for um, it enables like the Jay Powells and the Christian Lagards to essentially um, you know uh, to, to be behind the curve. It gives them time, right? Because they they're not facing you know they're fine. They're facing like a uh, CPI that's rising, but they're not looking at that you know they're not they're not seeing a commensurate move in bond yields, um, and that allows for them to you know drag their feet. It allows for Congress to like you know have absurd deficits, and and so so it goes far beyond just your you know uh, like your your growth portfolio, but certainly that too. But the point is that right now we're at an inflection point where the Bank of Japan is trying to hold the line at this upper bound of yield curve control. If they're unable to do so and JGB yields burst through that you know 25 basis points, um, then you're going to see a sell-off in global bond markets and so bond yields are going to rise everywhere. When that happens, you're going to you're you're going to see a much more of a sell-off um in, you know, in SP and in risk assets and you're looking at a totally different world. Um especially at a time when, you know, the Fed is supposed to hike rates every single meeting, you know, for the rest of 2022 and and the rest of global, you know, GM uh markets uh, economies are also supposed to you know, tighten policy and all that too. So Bank of Japan is the most consequential. It should be the most focused on because it's the one that's keeping everything together. Um, whether or not they can, who knows? Um, but it seems like for now they can. So like, personally, I would take a, if I were to take a market view, I would go uh, on a very short-term basis. I would go long U.S. treasuries right now because there seem, they seem to be able to cap the, uh, you know, yields, 10-year uh, JGB yields and therefore, uh, you know, global yields. Um, but, you have to really watch these levels. You have to watch what the Bank of Japan is doing because if they're unable to maintain um, the cap on on JGB yields, then everything could just fall apart. Like the world as we know it in terms of financial markets is will be totally different absent the Bank of Japan's yield curve control policy. Weston, you've done the very impressive here today. You've tied it all together, the macro and the micro, a global central bank policy uh, to U.S. equity valuations. Obviously, uh, a huge amount of information to get in in a 30-minute show, but a very interesting framework for people to think about. And my takeaway from this, Weston, is that people who are watching the show, U.S. equity investors, uh, are going to probably think differently about the Bank of Japan, its role in the global monetary system, uh, its role in controlling interest rates, and the correlation between those rates and valuations. Uh, well done, sir. Question for you, final takeaways, key thoughts that you'd like to bring together for people as we close this conversation. Uh, yeah, um, I'll just give 15 seconds on this last chart. Uh, Brian, if you bring up that uh, last chart on the yen. Um, if you just look at, if you if anyone wants any sort of guide on you know, potentially where U.S. Treasuries are headed or what might be driving it. If you look at dollar-yen, um, this is a chart of dollar-yen. This is month-to-date, and then this is uh, the bottom is sort of a longer term. And you can see that they very much move, like, very close in, in, in tandem. This is the impact. What, what I'm showing here is the impact 
uh, and the you know the the firepower that the Japanese investor or these sort of flows have on the U.S. Treasury market, um, and and vice versa. So watch things like yen positioning on uh, CFTC futures. Um, there's a ton of yen shorts. What they're doing is hedge funds playing this divergence, this policy divergence between uh, you know the U.S. Uh, Fed and BOJ um, and all that. But you know keep a very close eye on the yen because it's a risk off safe haven sort of uh, instrument. If you see some, something happen with Ukraine and you get a ton of short covering, that's going to crash, you know, uh, it's going to uh, pull, have a pullback on yields, it's going to have a pullback on, uh, or it's going to, you know, have a pullback on equity markets and, and things of that nature too. So it's very interconnected and all that. And it 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 is, you know, a lot of these Japanese like assets are very much like uh, the glue of, of everything, you know, um, in terms of markets that as we know it over the last several years, so. Yeah, very interconnected indeed, and an excellent explanation for just why uh, the interconnections exist the way they do, and some things to look at for people trying to understand these markets more broadly. Weston, as always, a pleasure to have you on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Pleasure's all mine. Thank you. Thanks again for watching the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Alf will be back tomorrow with Tony Greer. As always, the conversation continues on Real Vision's The Exchange. Thanks for watching, everyone. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.